Hello everybody, welcome to Borough Talks, um, our series for Borough Market of what we hope are inspiring discussions, conversations about food and food culture. Um, I'm Angela Clutton, I'm your host of Borough Talks, I'm a cook and a food writer and a food historian um, and this is the last in our initial series of the digital talks. So uh, let's welcome, let's welcome Kimberly Wilson. Kimberly, do you want to make yourself, make yourself visible? Hi. <laughs> Lovely reveal there, Kimberly. Lovely. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to do a quick intro, though I'd imagine uh, many of the people who have um, decided to join us for their lunchtime already know who you are, but just to cover quickly um, that you are a chartered psychologist and author and a visiting lecturer um, working in private practice in central London. Um, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that as we go through, we will touch upon many of the fascinating aspects of the work you've done in terms of prisons and uh, young offenders and, and, and all of that kind of work. So I hope we'll go through it in that way. But um, the core of your work, which we want to talk about today, is the link between nutrition and mental health. But I know that your work isn't just about nutrition aspect of, um, and uh, I am trying to hold up your wonderful book called How to Build a Healthy Brain, which came out, when did it come out, Kimberly? It literally came out something like the week before the lockdown. It was, like, it was the 5th of March. And then almost a week later, everyone was like, well, everyone needs to stay in their homes now. So it was... <laughs> But if they had this book when lockdown began, they'd have been very well set to cope with lockdown, I guess. Um, it is, it's, I mean, if I could just say, you know, congratulations on the book. I think it is so readable and so educational as well and a real insight. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I really enjoyed it. And the reason I think that I bought it and the reason I wanted to talk to you today was that I heard you say something or maybe I read it or maybe both, which really for me unlocked um my interest i suppose in food and mental health mm -hmm. and you were saying you'll say it better than me but you were saying i think that broadly speaking we've all got our heads around nutrition being really important physical health that we, we know healthy body we need to eat well mm -hmm. but that doesn't quite translate into a general understanding that you need to eat well for a healthy brain and putting it so simply that that disconnect if you like in our understanding just really unlocked something for me mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really it's wild, really. It's a very, very strange state of affairs because we understand that your body is a physical organ, you know, heart, lungs, you know, and, and that it requires, therefore, some practical, basic things in order to be healthy, good nutrition, movement, you know, proper breath, you know, all that stuff, reducing stress. But somehow we forget or ignore or don't acknowledge that the brain is an organ as well. And in the same way that your heart needs certain basics to be taken care of, your brain needs those basics as well. But I think if you stopped, you know, five, 10 people in the street and said, hey, what, what things should you do to take care of your physical health? Most people would be out, you know, oh, I shouldn't smoke or, you know, I should exercise, da, da, da. But if I were to say, and, and your brain, how should you take care of your brain? I think most people would be like, you know, I'm not really sure. Um, and it doesn't really, make And I think that's why your work is so important at trying to, in, and you do it in such an accessible way of trying to get people to just kind of put that together a bit more. Yeah, and, and particularly, particularly because diseases of the brain, diseases and disorders of the brain are our biggest killers. So the biggest, killer in the UK isn't heart disease. Most people think it's like heart disease, cancer, diabetes. It's not. It's actually Alzheimer's disease. It's now our leading killer. Um, and across the world, the leading cause of disability, so days lost, quality of life lost, is to depression. So our biggest sources of, of illness, our biggest source of illness across the world, but also for us in the UK, I mean, coronavirus notwithstanding, is the brain. And yet there isn't a public health campaign for the brain. There's one for smoking cessation. There are plenty for cancer. There's lots for diabetes, but there isn't anything from um, public health England or elsewhere that says, Hey, everyone, these are the basics you need to look after your brain and reduce your risk of things like Alzheimer's disease, because we can. And Kim, why do you think that is? Why do you think there is that lack of information coming through from is that, well, <laughs> is, that, is that the next hour taken care of? 
<laughs> there's so much um and and my, my book actually started as a seminar uh, cpd seminar for psychologists um because i, I think psychologists and psych psychology and psychiatry is, is really responsible for this in a lot of ways we we have a cartesian dualism that every there's kind of neck up is psychiatry and then neck down is medicine and so everything is completely separated and what it means is that we don't consider the brain a physical organ in the same way that we do everything else so when something goes wrong with the mind we think well psychotropic medication or talking therapy we don't consider well what does if this brain is not functioning properly and if we think about aspects of mental illness as an organ not functioning properly then why are we not thinking about what this organ needs in order to function properly um, so i think partly psychology and psychiatry is to blame for that separation between the brain and the body i think also the stigma around mental illness means that we don't even consider it you know that the we, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about what's wrong with the brain. Sit quietly. You sort it out over there. And we can deal with the body because the body is real. So it's this really strange combination of seeing the mind as separate from the body, which means we don't think it's amenable to change, but also then the stigma of the brain, meaning that we don't even, we don't think about the brain. We don't want to consider it. We don't want to talk about when it goes wrong and I think the final thing is simply being out of sight and out of mind you know with the rest of your body if you wanted to make a, a change in your physical health um I could say oh you know do this 12-week plan you'll see these changes you know this body blitz or whatever it might be and you can see the results but your your brain is out of sight and out of mind and you can't see the results and you can't put them on Instagram and so it's you know it's really about playing the long game and and thinking about investing for the long term in a way which is quite different from seeing changes in the rest of your body. What I'd like to do um, towards sort of the latter half of the session is talk about some of those particular things about things that people can do, yeah. you know, things that they can look forward to incorporate into their diet or you know, things around that. But before we get into those aspects of it, um, I'd really love to talk with you um, about uh, maybe this is more like the emotional relationships we have yeah. and thinking, um, especially when we started having a conversation about having this conversation it was very much framed within the initial period of covid and lockdown mm -hmm. and obviously things have evolved since then through covid and lockdown and then also other things have been assailing us from all sides and i think people are feeling very um vulnerable in terms of their mental health and so i'd like to get your thoughts really about what has been happening recently and people's uh, reactions to it through food mm. Yeah, and I think those are really multifaceted that, and I, I personally start from a position that um, we all have an emotional relationship with food. The nature of it will differ from person to person, but fundamentally because of the, our biology and the early life experience, that it's, it's impossible to separate those early emotional associations from the physical action of being fed and what i mean by that is um very very psychological here so just stop me if it's too much um so you have to think so if you think about a baby um in arms and a baby who is hungry doesn't have the language or any way of conceptualizing the experience of hunger but because it's so essential to our survival hunger is hardwired in us to be unpleasant it's, a, it's an uncomfortable experience it's you know and, and that's that discomfort drives us to seek food you know it's the reason we get hangry it's like there's an agitation there's a discomfort we don't feel quite right and so it drives us to go and seek food um but that we can conceptualize that as adults because we have that language but for a baby it's an all-consuming state of discomfort and, and for a baby, it doesn't know how long it's going to last or what's going to happen. You know, all it knows is distress and discomfort and it can feel completely overwhelming, right? Um, and so what happens when a child is fed is several things, right? So first of all, there is the recognition of the need from the parent or whoever the primary carer is. I've noticed that you're hungry. I've noticed that you have a need. Then there is the physical contact to get picked up 
you get held in arms. So there's the physical comfort of the, and the association. There's the gaze. So being noticed, being recognized. And then there's the relief that comes from the actual food. And it is impossible to separate those things, for the infant to separate any of those things. And that's the nature of feeding for the first year of life. And, and what animal studies tell us is that these, these associations get really deeply embedded in the brain and they form you know, our underlying basis, uh, the, the foundation of our relationships um, with people, but also with food, that those initial ones are really, really closely connected. And so those are our very, very early associations. And then as we go through life, there's a longer, I realize this is a really long answer to this question. I'm sorry. <laughs> And so as we go through life, there are then these longer associations, right? So there's the cultural associations, birthday cake and religious festival foods where food becomes imbued with symbolism, right? Um, we have certain drinks for celebrations. We have certain food traditions for mourning. You know, we, we eat certain foods to celebrate so food becomes imbued with symbolism in those ways, but often even within the family, so we think about that as a broader culture, even within the family, there can be a culture of food as being symbolic of other things. Lots of people will have a parent or a grandparent who is a feeder, you know, that she showed her love through food is so, so common to hear. Um, or when a child comes home and they're a bit cranky or upset from school and here, have a cup of tea and a biscuit and tell me about it. And so all of those associations get wound up together. And there's more and more and more, but essentially that there are these really, really close relationships with food. And so what that means is that there is an automatic turning to food for many many people when we feel anxious and when we feel worried or nervous or when we just feel kind of as if we need soothing we go back to that very early unconscious association that there is something about this process of being fed that brings relief and brings soothing and so i think that's coming back around to your question that's the reason that we've seen a real shift in the way that people eat during coronavirus. You know, people have been turning to bread, but also there's been a real peak in, in nostalgic foods, bird's eye potato waffles, beans on toast, you know, angel delight. People are eating these nostalgic foods. And I think there's something in that, which is around an, an unconscious sense that I need comfort. I need to be soothed. I need something curious, familiar. Curious things about what, what makes up, comfort food and that word comfort can have so many layers to it can't it in terms of the way we feed mm -hmm. ourselves I was doing um, a podcast the other week and the lady was asking me you know in this period of you know, being home have I been taking the opportunity to do amazing dishes because um, I had you know, a bit more time or, or whatever and I think you know what no it's all about the roast chicken and you know some toast with some really lovely butter and it's really some baked sponge I mean those are the things that I've been finding that I both want to cook and wants to eat and mm. I suppose what you're saying is that for me those are things I associate as being comforting but though different things to different people I suppose absolutely. depending on experience yeah absolutely that you know, there are some things that you know we might think if we want to get really really analytical about it we might think that um say milky foods might be more custards and ice creams and things like that um physiologically um the the emotional system kind of piggybacks on the, uh, the, the the temperature system. Essentially, for example, if you and I met in a warm room, a room that was just you know, turned up the temperature, the thermostat was turned up a little bit, um, and I was asked to give a review of you, you know, what kind of person you are, I would be, I would like you more if we met in a warm room than if we met in a cold room. I'm going to bear this in mind, not, not just for me, but generally in life. And that's partly that that relationship between um, emotionality and the temperature system is one of the reasons that we call, you know, in lots of different languages and lots of different cultures around the world, people who we like are warm and people whom we don't like are cold. That there's this innate association between warmth and goodness and kindness and comfort and cold as being, you know, uncomfortable um and so certainly my 
I do, you know, there's a reason that I, we don't have a comfort salad, right? That actually comfort foods tend to be warming. They tend, and I think it's something about that temperature association, which actually provides part of that comfort. There's something about being warm. Which, so does ice cream sneak in because it's milky? Possibly, yes. <laughs> and, you know, that combination between sugar and fat, which hits, you know, the dopamine system in a particularly specific way. Um, so there are, yes different foods for different people but they tend to be hot foods you know no one's saying i'm gonna have a nice comforting yeah salad or gaspacho <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting and i must keep an eye on time because i all right <laughs> no, 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 for, myself, for myself kimberly not for you because every time you say something it sparks me wanting to kind of take us in a slightly different direction um but so sort of, i suppose sort of a couple of thoughts on what you just said that Comfort food, I hear completely what you're saying about it being based upon experience and things that uh, resonate uh, with you personally as being comforting. But also what you just said about there being um, a, a, something chemical that happens, mm. which, is, which makes you feel good. You have some chocolate, you feel good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really, really complex. Yeah. It, it's so complex. And I think people can be very, very hard on themselves. I'm actually doing a workshop tomorrow on comfort food or comfort eating um because i think people could be very hard on themselves and and comfort eating comfort food has its own stigma we associate it with being out of control or greedy or you know all sorts of things but actually there's a really complex set of psychological and biological features that come together to make this thing comforting you know so there's the kind of early life part to it but there is the chemical part to it. you know the, that combination of sugar and fat that we find in ice cream that we find in donuts you know actually does chemically make us feel good we know that eating higher carbohydrate foods allows tryptophan which is the precursor to serotonin which is our happy hormone it makes it easier for that to get into the brain to cross the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain um, and you know that warm foods might have a particular association with emotionality and feeling better. So there's all of these different reasons, as well as in our, our social and cultural context in which we know that food, you know, do I eat something because it reminds me of my grandma and I miss her, you know, do I sit down and make the biscuits that she always made? Because actually in that moment, it helps me to feel emotionally connected with her. Well, let's stick with that idea. Oh no, sorry, I can't quite finish you go for Just it. Just to say that, you know, all of those things come together and I think if people know that and they can be a little bit more compassionate with themselves if they feel drawn to certain foods at certain times and actually if you know that then you can use it to, to ask yourself what do I need what's going on for me that I'm turning to this food what does it represent for me how does it make me feel what what am I lacking or I'm in need of so that I can give that to myself and I think you know, they just touched on something else that makes go in another direction but I won't about guilt um, oh. <laughs> we won't go there we won't go there we won't go there i'll do another one about food guilt um but you just touched on something i do want us to focus on um which is you were mentioning about um making a choice to um eat your grandmother's cookies or even to bake your grandmother's cookies and it's something which i feel you know i've seen across my social media stream over the last couple of months you know the extent to which people have been baking banana bread you know indulging discovering you know making sourdough you know, really doing these things and that's an interesting thing is it but why choose people are not only choosing to eat in certain ways but to what well, to be baking more i suppose is what i'm asking you about why people are doing doing that yeah, and I think baking has its own, you know, obviously I have my particular history. This <laughs> <laughs> is the moment to go there. <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know, um, Kimberly was a finalist, mm -hmm. finalist on Bake Off. What year was that? Uh, 2013 now, so very okay. long time ago. So yeah, so it was impossible to get to the baking section of this without... <laughs> without a little mention. Yeah. Um, and yeah. well, I just ask, where does that, your Bake Off experience in time where did that fit within your journey of um becoming a psychologist um so at the i so i was already qualified by then and i was working in prison um and really the opportunity came up um and so i was transitioning from working in, in prison full-time to starting my own practice and i kind of did bake off in the middle of that so, um, so yes so baking baking mm -hmm. the rise the upsurge and people wanting to do these difficult bakes so we <laughs> difficult but yeah i remember difficult bakes 100 percent. um so i think we know from the bake-off experience that there is something for some reason intrinsically soothing 
about baking and I've had people message me during coronavirus lockdown from America particularly when we were first going into lockdown when people were very anxious saying just watching the show they found very soothing and it was very relaxing for them and and again I think partly it's because baking baking is something you do when you have some time it takes time whether it's you know making a bread or a complex bake or simply a, a standard cake it still needs to be in the oven for 45 50 minutes and so baking requires you to slow down there is you cannot rush it you can rush you know a stir fry you can rush a meal in ways you're going to have something on the table in 20 minutes but you cannot rush baking um and so and i, I know because <laughs> competitive baking will test you in that um so there's something about being forced to slow down which i think particularly in our current social kind of environment, people don't do very often or feel very guilty about. Um, you know, we're always moving from to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, ticking boxes, showing our friends how productive we are, having apps to give us the perfect morning routine. You know, there's always this sense of constant filling of the time and productivity. So I think something about baking which helps you, forces you to slow down is very, very important. I think because it has to be very precise, it can be very meditative for some people. So, you know, going down a list, doing things in order, it can almost help to structure your thinking. Um, you know, you can't go off piece, you have to just be very focused. So it can be quite mindful in that sense. Um, but I think also, um, many of us are, again in kind of current society many of us are in jobs where we don't have a physical output for our efforts you know we might be sitting in a call center or we might be in a retail job or we might be doing something that's very effortful all day but not have anything to physically show for it i think that's quite difficult um and so when you bake something there is something in that achievement that achievement of having produced something taking something from raw ingredients and i think nothing like making a cake can feel like magic you know you've got flour and eggs and butter and sugar they all seem quite disparate and unrelated and most of them are savory it's all that's all quite weird um, and then at the end you can have this beautiful cake um, and I think there's something very very simple about having produced something something pragmatic with your hands that can give a sense of accomplishment that I think for a lot of people isn't as available as it should be in their work or in their everyday lives in other ways. I know it's absolutely fascinating and I hadn't quite thought of it in that way. Um, and I think it's a very, in, it, and you've made me think slightly differently about people willingness, over willingness possibly to post pictures on social media of what they've done. And it's easy, you probably think of it being show-offy and maybe a little competitive even, but actually what you're saying is, um, and maybe that says something not so great about me, that that was my sort of interpretation of some of it, that what you're saying is uh, that it, people want to go look, you know, look, look what I've made. Absolutely. And, and you know, it might be competitive, but still, there's always a question about why someone has to compete. You know, we, I think we are looking for status. We often are looking for status in lots of ways. And I think what that tells us is that lots of people feel a bit lower in status or we feel that we're not quite making the grade. And you know, something like, like you know, it's not like carpentry where you have to take years and years to practice and learn. And then, you know, you've got a whole weekend to try and make a, a table or whatever, you know, you can, if you're careful, be pretty much a novice and take raw ingredients and produce something within a couple of hours that you can be proud of. And I wonder, and you know, again, this is a very kind of psychological perspective, but I wonder whether people just don't have that many opportunities every day to feel proud of themselves or to get people to say, well done, that's really impressive. Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. And I can totally see that the sourdough thing, which is quite hard and you don't crack it first time, um, I've never cracked it. And, you know, so it's something you really do have to kind of apply yourself to. I can see from hearing you talk, I can, I can understand much more why people have been so drawn to spending so much time really kind of really committing to the sourdough, you know, endeavour and so many people. So, and, and obviously, I guess also bread being such a simple, mm. you know, wonderful staple of everything. It, again, comes back to the comfort. So it's, it's a mixing of ideas, isn't it? the kind of comfort food idea, the taking time to kind of make things. It's... Mm. So interesting. Um, 
before we just before we move on to thinking specifically about nutrient groups and what people can mm. actually do um, in terms of um, their diet and mental health, um, I'd like to just talk about children actually. If that's something sure. to kind of go into, because mm. I listened to um, a podcast. I did um, for everyone watching. I did say to Kim before we began. I had going to have to resist the temptation to kind of fangirl my way through this. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, um, Kimberly has a wonderful uh, podcast, and I uh, listened to an episode which I think you may have recorded a little while ago about um, children and breakfasts. Oh, was that with part of the Crime and Nourishment series? Yes, exactly. Oh, no, that was only, that's really recent, actually. Yeah, only I listened to it recently, but I wasn't sure if you'd done it a little while mm. ago. And and I was thinking about at the moment and about children and um, trying to ensure that children have a good diet for physical health but also for their mental health when children have been at home so much more and so time the way the day works different mm. and so how families deal with that this is one of those long questions how families deal with that challenge of uh trying to ensure you know children have a, a good diet for their mental health at home mm. and also thinking about um you know i know from my own family experience that it can be very anxiety making for children with schools shutting and then also the schools reopening and that creates a challenge as well for mental health and, and the role that you know, food plays into that so but could you just touch a little bit on those issues uh, ish what because <laughs> I, I can riff on this but yeah 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 want to riff for a couple of minutes okay so i think what i think what I would want people, if people take anything away from this, um, I really want you to understand that your brain is made of food. Um, you know, and that seems obvious, but I think sometimes we forget that every part of us is made of food. Um, and therefore the availability of certain nutrients is going to make a difference to the development of all of your body, but I think particularly your brain. Your brain is a particularly hungry organ. Right? It only makes up about two, three at a push percent of your overall body weight, but it uses somewhere in the region of 22 to 25% of your body's calories when, when the body's at rest, right? So it's massively punching over its weight in terms of energy demand, but also nutrient demand. Um, and the, the, the big phases of development for the brain are preconception with pregnancy, um, so sorry, pregnancy, um, and then early years, the first three years of life. And then, you know, obviously we'd like to keep children nourished all the way through that, but then particularly during adolescence. And what happens during adolescence is a process called pruning. So um, the brain kind of gets rid of unnecessary connections and synapses and neurons in the brain. Um, but also the body is going through a growth spurt. So there's a competition between the nutrient demands of the brain and the nutrient demands of the body and and often the body will prioritize growth over the brain so it's a particularly important time to ensure that adolescents have a, a sufficient nutrients for their brain health um, and also because some around 75 percent of mental health disorders will develop before the age of 24. So this is a particularly crucial time. Um, and then adolescents also have to deal with the influx of hormones. So I really want people to get the importance of nutrition for children and in terms of their brain development, brain development and mental health. And when I was making the Crime and Nourishment series, um, some, I had a, a kind of theory about this relationship between food and hunger and behavior, but I was absolutely blown away by the actual links so that we know that children who are hungry, and I, you know, if I go back to the baby analogy in a sense of tension and anxiety and agitation, children who are hungry, A, they cannot concentrate. So if a child hasn't had a good breakfast and all the most important lessons in school are in the morning, maths, science, all happen in the morning. So if a child hasn't had breakfast and they're hungry and they can't concentrate, they are missing the opportunity for the most important aspect of learning. But also they can't manage their behavior. They're much more likely to be agitated. They're much more likely to act out. They're much more likely, you know, if you get hangry, then a kid gets hangry, right? And, and, and we know what was startling to me was to find out that even when accounting for other features of deprivation, children on free school meals are four times more likely to be excluded from school for their behavior. 
and I was speaking to Carmel McConnell who set up uh, Magic Breakfast and she has countless stories and research that shows that children who were at the brink of being excluded from school because of their behavior suddenly were able to settle down when they joined the breakfast club and they had a breakfast. And it's so, so, so important because we know that children from black, Asian, minority, ethnic and poor backgrounds are most likely to be on in receipt of free school meals. Um, but those are also the children more likely to be excluded from school. And we know once you're excluded from school, you're much more likely to start on the pathway to prison. And then what I did with the crime and nourishment series was to look at research which showed that improving nutrition in prison populations through supplements this, this time, not through food, through supplements, reduced violence and aggression in prisons by on average of 30%. And so we really need to start taking this relationship between food, brain and behavior much, much more seriously because actually it's an equality issue. It's a social justice issue. If children are being kicked out of school because they're hungry, that is an indictment on our society for not being able to feed children properly. For all of you who are watching this, who are interested in the subject, and I assume you are, or else you really wouldn't be here, um, if you haven't already, you really, the Crime and Nourishment um, podcast is just um, transformative, actually. Um, I mean, I really, I really found it um, upsetting and inspiring and educating and motivating and so many things. And so I would urge anyone to go to where all the podcasts are and you know, seek it out. It's, it's such, such great listen. Um, but it's a difficult thing with kids as well, because you think, well, it's quite hard to get kids to have, you know, a healthy, healthy breakfast, healthy meal. So maybe now's the time, oh. <laughs> a good time to kind of lead ourselves into thinking about some of, you know, from the, these general ideas of, you know, how to you know, eat well for our mental health to really kind of you know, get into what some things are that people can take away as ideas. There's loads of it in your book, of course. Um, mm -hmm. And also there's this wonderful um, questionnaire asking you about how you eat. And I was saying to you earlier that I sort of did it with one eye kind of shut thing. It's sort of <laughs> dreading um, it, but it's like, you're, you're not judgmental. It's, it's just you know, to, to, to inform what your choices are. Um, and it was surprising actually. So let's, let's think about um, just running through some of these you know, food groups and the kinds of things that you think people should be, should be incorporating into their diet. Okay, so I, if, I, if people took one thing away, I lied, two things. If you take away anything else, the thing that I will stand on my soapbox on top of a high horse on and wave a flag about is um, the importance of omega-3 fatty acids. I cannot state this clearly or more explicitly enough. Essential fats, so fats found in oily fish, make up a third of the membrane of your brain cells. So if each brain cell was a house, as the analogy I use, then every third brick is an omega-3 essential fatty acid. And they're essential because your body can't make them, they have to come from your food. Um, so if you don't have those, food, if those foods, then you'd simply are deficient in those fats. And what that means is that the structural integrity of your brain is compromised but also the capacity to signal is compromised because these long chain fatty acids found in oily fish and seafood um, shape the, the synapse which is a communication gateway in the brain so that you can pass serotonin so that you can receive um, dopamine and the other important neurotransmitters so they are so crucial to brain health and the big 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 worry is that hardly anyone so the NHS says, you know, two portions of fish a week of which one should be oily. All of the researchers that I spoke to in the crime and nourishment series said that that is not enough. All of the researchers eat oily fish two or three times a week and some of them will take a supplement on top of that. So, but irrespective, barely anyone in the UK is eating two portions of fish a week to start with. Um, but that's a particular concern because what we know from the animal studies is that a woman who is pregnant who isn't getting sufficient DHA, oh, well, so the animal study, so let's say this, this is a mass trials, but the pups had 50% fewer synapses, so 50% fewer connections in the brain when the mother had... In, insufficient DHA, which is an essential fatty acid, to the 
mothers who had sufficient DHA. And so there are these intergenerational risks from insufficient intake of these fats, which literally make up the structure of the brain. Um, and there's a, a big concern that a lot of the developmental disorders in children are at least in part related to the insufficient availability of these fats in terms of their brain development. So oily fish all day and night is the thing. I'm, I'm at least 50% anti because we eat so many. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I yeah, you do you do make that point very seriously and it, when I heard you say that um I, I think my reddit or podcast I came home and I said to my husband we have to go out and get your parents some mackerel <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> like I made him go to the fish wrangle and get some mackerel and get it around there these are the care packages of the future it's just fish <laughs> I love you eat some fish so we're talking exactly so we are talking about mackerel we're talking about anchovies we're talking about salmon Yes, so smash is a nice way to uh, remember them. So uh, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, herring, sardines. Um, also um, mussels, and, you know, and bivalves if you eat them. Tuna does not count anymore, everybody. I'm sorry. Tuna doesn't count as an oily fish anymore. It has insufficient omega-3 to count as a source. I mean, if, if you like it, eat it, but don't think you're getting a source of omega-3 from tuna and um, you've obviously made it sound very important but if you don't eat fish then you'll be looking for an algae based dha supplement uh, so essentially um the dha is produced in the algae the fish eat the algae and um what's the word like they accumulate it in their bodies and then we eat the fish so if you don't eat fish and there are other nutrients in fish that are important protecting against a brain health but protecting for brain health but if you don't eat fish then you kind of you can cut out the middle fish and go straight to the algae so go to your health food store and ask for a high um high dose dha from an algae source and you want it to be above 500 milligrams uh, per day brilliant that's very nice and clear for everyone um what, what should we pick as our next our next nutrient group um maybe fiber fiber is one that is perhaps people don't expect quite as much We've, we're hearing a lot of fiber about fiber in terms of um gut health which is fantastic um but one of and, and it's kind of similar in terms of brain health though it's so in the book i spent some time talking about um, a process called inflammation or systemic inflammation which essentially is an overactive immune um function immune response and um, which is triggered in response to chronic illness or chronic infection, but also in terms of certain lifestyle factors. So poor sleep can turn up this immune function, a poor diet can turn up this immune fun function and um, insufficient fiber can as well. And why that's important is if I can make a long story short. So um, essentially if you, so this is your, you know, your gut wall. So let's see if we cut it in half. So this is your intestine and there's a little layer of gel in there uh, which protects the gut wall from you know the contents of 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 the bowel um, and the bacteria live on that lovely little gel layer and they eat fiber fiber is it's a favorite food source of the gut microbiome and lots of different sources of fiber so different cereal grains beans legumes vegetables starchy vegetables that sort of thing um, however if you don't eat enough fiber what will happen is that essentially the gut bugs will start to starve um, but because they don't want to starve, they will turn to this alternative fuel source called mucin, which is in that gel layer. So they will eat through that gel layer, which eats through that protective layer. And then what you have is a gut wall, which is now permeable. So where bacteria can cross over into the bloodstream and where immune cells can cross over into the gut. And essentially your immune system doesn't want bacteria roaming around where it shouldn't be and that's where you get this turning on of this immune response but what happens then is that those chemicals that are um, that, that are produced by this immune response can cross over into the brain and turn on this immune response in the brain and that's when we have neuroinflammation and neuroinflammation is associated with depression it's associated with bipolar disorder it's associated with all degenerative disorders of the brain and so actually eating fiber is a really important way of 
essentially taking care of the conditions in the body to help manage this immune response and, and reducing the risk of switching on this neuroinflammation. Does that make, make sense? I feel like I've been talking for ages. No, 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 no. it doesn't make complete <laughs> sense. But I think it's quite a hard thing for someone who's not you to get their head around. Mm. Um, and so in, you, know, you do talk about it a lot you know, in the book and, and very clearly when you talk about it clearly then too, but I think it's something you need, I feel that I needed to hear it a few times mm. to really kind of understand it. But, in, in, but almost your only, your only thing you need to understand is eat fibre. Eat fibre. Just, just eat fibre, guys. <laughs> it's good for your brain. Like it's not just your gut, it's good for yeah. your brain. Just, just know fiber. that. And if you want to know more, it's all there in the book, but just know that. Um, something that surprised me as a, a food group that you picked out, well, whiz through quite a few, um, but you talk um, a little bit about herbs and spices. Yeah. <laughs> really, I haven't really thought that when I'm chopping up, you know, my basil or pasta or, you know, throwing in some turmeric or whatever, that I was um, doing anything for my brain at all. Yeah, so th this is the, the polyphenol group of foods and uh, included in here is also your berries, um, you know, your brightly coloured fruits and vegetables and polyphenols um, and, and phytochemicals, the chemicals that come from plants um, are, again... So throw in leafy greens here too, we can embrace all of this through this ish. Ish, no, there's right. more ingredients. Are kind of a separate category, but they also are rich in polyphenols. So what happens? The polyphenols, these these brightly coloured compounds and these phytochemicals, um, again, they get broken down in in the gut, and they produce what's called phenolic acids. You don't need to worry about that, but essentially, um, these acids can help reduce inflammation in the brain. So they are neuroprotective. Um, but also, the polyphenols in fruits and in, in berries, for example, lots of really beautiful randomized um, double blind control trials that show that if, for, um, if, for example, you have a, a very demanding uh, interview or presentation to give or, you know, the study has been done on children as well, on test scores. If you eat 200 grams or the, you know, the equivalent of blueberries, um, you get improvements in cognitive function. So improvements in working memory, improvements in um, focus and attention. And that's because what these polyphenols do is increase perfusion, which is the amount of blood flow in the brain. Um, and that's, it does that because it kind of helps to keep the blood vessels nice and flexible, which is why, again, they're so important for your brain health, because your brain is full of tiny blood vessels, of course. Um, so um, this regular consumption of these polyphenol-rich foods actually helps to, again, take care of the structure of the brain. Um, so of course, similarly, if you went for a run, you would increase blood flow and you get better cognitive function with that as well. Um, but herbs and spices in particular are just really rich in hundreds and hundreds of plant compounds um, which we don't fully understand what they do but they are um, the, it's this diversity and this complexity of plant compounds which we think helps at least one thing that it does is to protect the gut microbiome give it lots of rich different food sources which then allow it to produce you know protective compounds for the body and the brain. I, I don't want to miss anything out so we want to kind of give people as things to uh, think about yes. if they're dying we're going to get we're just about to kind of come to questions so i'm just going to whiz through and you can nod if i'm right that these <laughs> and stop me if they're not obviously um and then we'll maybe expand upon them because i think some of the questions may be um coming into somebody's as well sure um so leafy greens which i mentioned um a little mm -hmm. bit there, but we're talking about beetroot tops charge chicory, kale, radicchio, rocket, spinach, all, those, all that kind of world mm -hmm. of things. And Kimberly's nodding, which is very good. Um, nuts and seeds. Mm -hmm. um, so nut butters, would that count? Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, salted nuts, do they count? They count. Thing is, when you roast them, you might slightly denature the, um, the fats. Okay. So when they get roasted and salted, and generally we tend to want people to eat a little bit less salt. I mean, there's a question about whether everyone needs to eat less salt or whether it's just people with sodium sensitive hypertension that need to eat less salt. But in general, we tend to like people to eat a little bit less salt. So I would prefer raw, but you know, maybe if you, if you want to throw a handful of salted nuts in with your raw nuts, it makes, if it makes it more palatable for you. But if, I go, if I go for salted nuts, I'm not sort of, you know, not, I'm not missing out completely on no. brain benefits. Okay. Um, what else? What have we not mentioned? So we talked about oily fish, we talked about leafy greens, talked about nuts and seeds, talked about berries, which is brilliant. So, you know, loads of berries in with your breakfast is you know, a great thing to do. Mm -hmm. spices and beans and alliums and whole grains, fibre. Um, water, I think we should, should we should talk a little bit about water? Do you want to 
Yes. Well, I mean, just simply that, you know, we talk about your brain being made up of fats, but also it's made up of a lot of water. So, and as soon as it starts to become depleted for, in water, then you get what's called um, increased perceived, um, I've got the word now, um, perceived activity. So you get more fatigued. Um, and so really just staying hydrated just makes sense. It also helps to ensure that because the brain isn't held in place, the brain actually kind of sits, it's like a water balloon in a shell. And there's a very thin membrane around the outside, which is filled with liquid. And, and that's what cushions the brain against the inside of the skull. So if you get dehydrated, then you've got less of that protection, but also it just helps you think faster. It improves mood, so just stay hydrated. Brilliant. Um, so I think we're going to go to questions of which okay, okay. Uh, I'll have you rearrange there. Come <laughs> for the questions. Um, please do, guys, if you have more questions, use them in. We already have um, quite a few, but we'll, we'll get through. I'll try and pick uh, as much of a range of questions as I can. Um, so we have a question here from if you eat white fish like cake or cod, etc. Are mm -hmm. there any benefits compared to eating oily fish? So I just want to be absolutely like, very careful and, and say, of course, you shouldn't only eat things because they're good for you. If you like hay and cod, please enjoy, you know, enjoy your food. Um, but if we were thinking very strictly about, you know, so there are other benefits. There are, you know, there's protein and there are vitamins and all that sort of stuff. So, yes, there are other nutrients in um in white fish. But I would be saying in order to make sure that your brain is getting the necessary you know, sufficient levels of omega-3, you would also need to have later in the week, one or two servings of oily fish. Yeah. Or, um, a lady is asking um, about, um, and something which we um, maybe haven't um, talked about very directly, about links between um, stress and digestion. Yes, loads. Um, <laughs> um, so I do a lot of work with IBS and what people, it's really important to understand is that um, IBS is a stress sensitive disorder and it's related to, you know, people may have heard about the gut brain axis. The, the, the main structural component of the gut brain axis is a nerve called the vagus nerve. Um, so it goes all the way from the base of the brain down into the heart, the lungs, it goes, it loops in the back of the throat into the stomach but and then finishes in the intestine but it's also so as well as being that main structural component it's also the main component of the parasympathetic nervous system which is the antidote almost to the the fight or flight system the um, sympathetic nervous system so it's like a seesaw your parasympathetic nervous system is called the rest and digest system and then you've got your a fight or flight system and quickly Kimberly just to yes. say that the um the ladies asked this question is quite specific asking about Crohn's and colitis okay so I'm gonna uh, stay out of Crohn's and colitis because those are irritable bowel diseases whereas IBS is a functional gut disorder um and so there are specific um questions around Crohn's and colitis which are a little bit different related but a little bit different yep. um so I, I'm gonna say specifically yep. with IBS got it um, so when you're in that fight or flight mode, there are several physiological responses. You get increased in pain perception. You get um, the blood moves away from the gut. Essentially, digestion shuts down. Blood moves into the extremities to provide you with enough you know, blood flow to fight or flee. Um, heart rate goes up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's why you you can't really digest your food when you're stressed and anxious. It's why you end up feeling a bit nauseous when you're stressed and anxious. It's why you, you get a bit of a funny tummy when you're stressed and anxious. And it's the reason why you should always try to relax, calm down, take a breath, step away from work or a stressful situation before you try to eat, because that's when your body will switch over into this rest and digest mode where you can actually properly digest your food. Um, but yes, the, the really, I've done, if you, if you want to go over to my page, I've done a couple of, you know, there's a video on the relationship between stress and IBS. Um, and I have a podcast on understanding IBS as well from the psychological perspective. So um, yeah, that's there. Lots of relationships over. So please, 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 because the thing that people often do if they have IBS symptoms is assume it's the food and then they start cutting out food groups, but then that might create shifts in the gut microbiome and make the problem worse um, than it was in the first place. So don't always assume it's food. Your gut is very, very sensitive to, to psychological stress. Brilliant. I'm um, going to try and get through as many of these. <laughs> <laughs> 
no, no, I didn't mean that at all. It's just we have a lot of questions. Um, and I hope I'm right in saying, Kimberly, because we, we won't get through all these, that people can um, come to you on social media if they have... Yes, what I what I might do if this is very specifically about food and mental health, what I might do, I do a Sunday live at 10 o'clock on Sundays. And so maybe we, we make that the Sunday live and people can come over to my Instagram and we can just go through it there. Maybe that sounds good because we, we have a lot here which we're not going to get to. Okay. Um a question about time this is a very a very good question is um time of day to eat meals. Does that have any bearing upon um mental health? On mental health, um, brain health, no. mental health, protect, protection, or take it, no, take it how not, you like. No, not really. So there's the, there's an area of nutrition called chrononutrition, which looks at the different ways that your metabolism changes throughout the day. Very, 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 very broadly speaking, because there's lots of individual difference, your metabolism is more efficient earlier in the day than it is later in the day. So it tends to be better to take have the bulk of your overall calories earlier in the day than late in the day but there's lots of individual difference in that. I would want people to eat when they're hungry <laughs> rather than trying to stick to specific times because it's very important to develop a good relationship with your body. Um, but in terms of brain health, no, your brain just wants to have enough nutrients. Great, great, that's very, that's very good news for me. Okay, um, another very good question. Um, do um, think about the link between autism and food. Um, and this questioner is saying, children with autism normally have a very restrictive diet and not getting any oily fish or DHA. Mm. Um, so I'm going to stay in my lane slightly and I'm not an autism specialist. Um, there is a very high comorbidity between gut issues and autism that is known for sure. Um, but that's still being teased out in terms of, you know, which comes first, what the relationship is. And I would hold out, I will speak to an autism specialist, uh, dietitian or um, psychologist, um, but also hold out for the research. There's a lot of quite uh, strange, shall we say, um, advice out there for, um, for autism. Um, but essentially, you know, your, your, your child's brain needs certain nutrients. And I know autistic children have, tend to have um, you know, difficulties with texture and, and sensory things. So that it might be that you need to speak to a pediatric dietitian to try to find ways to ensure that you can present the nutrients that your child's brain needs in a way that your child can eat them. Um, so I think that would be kind of the best thing to, to do. Yeah. Um, um, it's hard choosing questions. Uh, <laughs> so we have a question here about um, postnatal and um, depression and postnatal diet. Mm. Is that to go into? Um, a tiny, tiny bit, and only in terms of the research. In as far as what's been really interesting is that a clinical trial that um, randomised pregnant women to take a, a probiotic supplement, and it was a specific one, so not just one that was off the shelf, but took a probi probiotic supplement from six months uh, of pregnancy um, until I think it was a year if the woman was breastfeeding. Um, I can check, it's certainly in the book, I think. Um, but that reduced risk of postnatal depression. Um, so, that's very and, and it kind of relates to this idea of looking after the gut to ensure that there isn't something else going on in the brain what's also true is that of course a pregnant woman has a very high demand for dha that oily fish um and the, it's so important for the uh, the child's brain development the baby's brain development that it may leach it from the mother's brain in order to provide it to the baby so again it's making sure that pregnant women um are getting sufficient amounts of these oil or these nutrients for their own brains as as well as the developing baby's brain did i answer the question yes you did <laughs> fear not you did um let's think uh then a couple of questions coming in about um menopause and mental health and diet mm. um so i again so menopause is very very specific and actually there's a new book out um it's called the xx brain which is by lisa Moscone, um which looks specifically at i think menopause and um the fact that women have a higher risk of alzheimer's disease and that's linked to men menopause we think because estrogen is a neuroprotective hormone so you know it does lots of things it also protects you against bone health and obviously ensures that you have regular periods but it's also neuroprotective and so we think that the the 
twofold risk that women have of Alzheimer's disease after the menopause is linked to the loss of estrogen. So I actually haven't read uh, uh, Dr. Moscone's book just yet, but I would guess that she's actually gone into whether there are nutritional um, supports that you can use for that. But it's really about thinking about um, that links to hormone health, but also making sure that you have invested in your brain health before before then. So as I said, it's playing the long game. And what you can do is, I call it making a, a pension plan for your brain. You can build up, it's called cognitive reserve. And if you can build it up throughout your life, certainly starting by um, in middle age, you reduce your risk of these things. And so I would want, the whole reason I wrote the book is that I want people to start thinking about their brain health earlier in life so they can reduce their risk of all of these disorders because mm -hmm. there are things that you can do to protect your brain. But if you haven't, and you are, you know, because, because people don't, and a bit like pensions, and then you get to, you know, a point and think, oh, you know, crikey, is all lost, or you know, is it too late to start? Oh, okay. absolutely. So it's not too late. It's never too late. And what some of the most fascinating research has been on older populations, in particular, looking at older women and actually getting them to do exercise, so just shift away from food. But uh, getting people to do regular exercise, including weight-bearing exercise, can reduce age-related brain aging so it's never too late to do something yep. but the earlier you start the better um kimberly do you mind just saying again the name of that book you just mentioned um xx brain by lisa Moscone. great okay brilliant um there's a lot of interest coming in about those issues so that's uh, great so again so people hope to catch it um and i think we'll probably put that out on social media as well um a slightly personal question this one can be but i think lots of people are interested to know can you talk us through a typical diet for you <laughs> in a typical Kimberly Hi. day what, what would you eat and drink um so i uh, to be yeah i'm quite nerdy right so um i do tend to have a, a grain it's like a cereal based breakfast technical Largely I eat what I like, um, but of course that is informed by what I know is good for me. So I think there's that overlap between the two. But so, for example, I will have porridge or overnight oats, um, but I use a muesli base. So it's not just oats, it's oats, barley, rye, wheat and spelt. And so that's about getting that diversity of whole grains. Um, I make my own kefir, so I usually soak my overnight oats in kefir and that's providing the probiotics, which are important. And now we'll top that with berries and... Um, at the moment I'm topping it with rhubarb and apple so da, da, da. Um, lunchtime tends to be either something leftovers often soup right from the freezer today it will be um, leftover hummus from last night's dinner with a sourdough wrap which I have got fermenting on the counter and then what am I having this evening I'm having cinnamon chicken from um, my friend Mimi Eyes um, mandalay book but i will my rice is again a rice blend of whole grain frica um wild rice again to get that diversity and there'll be some greens on the side so you know th things i like but you know with little tweaks so if you're gonna eat nuts eat mixed nuts if you're gonna eat seeds have mixed seeds so that you're increasing the diversity um and if you can if you're having whole grains if you're having starches try to have them whole grain as much as possible you don't have to be exclusive about it but as much as possible yeah um you haven't mentioned tea or coffee is that because they're a no-no no, it's because I, I, I take them as for granted. <laughs> I've had one of each so far today. I make I, my... I, I, a nasty thing you're going to say that coffee was going to be bad. I, no, I, coffee I actually um, increases the production of an enzyme in the brain that protects against Alzheimer's disease. So um, unless you're sensitive to it, there is no problem with coffee other than perhaps if your coffee comes as a frappuccino with lots of lots and lots of free sugar. Um, otherwise, you are good to go on the coffee. That's for me, a good note for us to draw this to a close. <laughs> um, Kimberly, that has been just the most amazing. Thank you so much. No, no, no. To any extent you have, it's because it is fascinating and there's so much to say, and you have conveyed it brilliantly and very clearly and in a very accessible way because that's what you do. Um, for people who want to follow you and find out more about your work, what's the best places for them to go to do that? Um, Either my website, which is the kind of hub where you can find everything, which is 
Kimberly and it's Kimberly with an L-E-Y, um, KimberlyWilson.co um, or Instagram, uh, which where I'm um, at food and psych. Great. Um, and you were saying about a Sunday, um, a Sunday. Sunday live on Instagram, 10 o'clock on Sunday. And we'll, I'll, we'll just do it as a food and mental health Q&A um, to get through some of these questions. Great, because there's been a lot of questions through and I'd hate people to feel they didn't get the opportunity to um, get an answer. So if you're able to do that and people can head there on Sunday. Tell, sorry, I know you said it. What time on Sunday evening? Um, 10 a.m. Oh, so on Sunday morning. Sunday, Sunday morning. morning. Sunday yes. morning. Why do I keep saying evening? Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Um, that's just absolutely brilliant. Um, Kimberly Wilson, huge, huge thanks. Um, uh, absolutely, absolutely wonderful to have you. Um, to all of you who have watched, um, I really hope you have enjoyed it and had some good positive things to kind of take away. Um, as ever, thank you for listening to Borough Talks. I um, really hope you've enjoyed it. This is the, the last in this um, initial series of digital talks. Um, they are all available to watch back if you head to the Borough Market um, social media links you can find to watch back on the previous ones in the series. But, um, but for now, goodbye and thank you. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>